0: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face
1: lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
2: Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them, so we thought we'd tell you that. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm your host, Leslie Waters, and my guest today is Julie Alt, author of the new book, Saving Nature Under Socialism Transnational Environmentalism in East Germany, 1968 to 1990, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press as part of the New Studies in European History series. Welcome, Julie, to the podcast.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: So first, a little about our author. Julie Alt is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Utah. She received her PhD from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in 2015. And her research has been funded by Columbia University's Council for European Studies, the Berlin Program, and the Central European History Society, among other organizations. She's currently a faculty fellow at the University of Utah's Tanner Humanities Center, where she's developing her second book project, tentatively titled Socialism and Socialist Riches, East German Diplomacy, Environment and Technology, 1949 to 1989. So I'd like to start by asking you how you got interested in the topic of environmentalism in East Germany during state
1: socialism. Yeah, um, this is always a fun story to tell. I started... um, getting interested in environmental politics type and green movement type things. um, Well, I was studying abroad as an undergraduate in Freiburg, uh, Germany, in the southwestern corner. It's known of the country. uh, It's known as the eco capital of Germany. And, um, you know, I had a great time studying abroad. I thought this was really interesting. Came back to the U.S. and wrote an undergraduate thesis on sort of the transition from Green uh, Movement to Green Party uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, But after I graduated from college, I really wanted to go back to Germany. And by total coincidence, I got placed in the former East Germany. I knew nothing about it. Um, I had hardly heard of the town I was placed in, uh, which was Jena. Um, But while I was there as a Fulbright English teaching assistant, I was talking to a lot of the teachers I worked with and um, there were really different conversations or almost a lack of conversation about nature and environmentalism. Uh, and this really struck me as odd, right? Everything in Freiburg in the West had been about, you know, anti-nuclear movements and green movement and all this stuff. And so I get over to the former East and I'm like, nobody's talking about it. Surely there was pollution in East Germany, what was going on? Um, and so I ended up applying to graduate school on the idea of Looking at um, what sorts of environmental policy and protests there had been in East Germany, um, you know, surely there was pollution, right? So, like, how did people react to that? Um, and then as I dove further into the East German side of things, I realized I don't want to study East Germany in isolation. There's a ton of really good work on East Germany specifically, but I wanted to put it in larger conversation. So, I developed this transnational. Um, approach in which I incorporated particularly West Germany and Poland and sort of seeing East Germany as this hinge between Eastern and Western Europe and trying to break down um, this Eastern-Western Europe divide that um, really quite bugs me (laughs) in a lot of ways, from funding opportunities to structures (laughs) of institutions, all sorts of things like this, um, and sort of try to bring them together rather than view them as these two very isolated blocks.
2: right. So throughout your book, you describe a sort of inherent tension between the East German state's commitment to nature protection, as they called it, right, on the one hand, and on uh, an economic growth on the other. So can you tell us a little bit about this tension and why leaders of East Germany felt at least a rhetorical need to address protecting nature?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is both um, the East German State, government, dictatorship, you know, whatever term you want to use there. Uh, we use a lot of them when um, talking about authoritarianism in Eastern Europe. But um, I think there, there's a cynical answer and then there's a more idealistic answer. And I think they both played a really important role here. Um, on the one hand, I think the East German government really thought, and the, the ruling Communist Party, the SED, Thought that they could improve workers' lives and they should improve workers' lives, and the workers are the basis of the East German state, right? It's a uh, workers and farmers or workers and peasants state, um, and they saw that in part as you're know, really important that there should be a way for East Germans to enjoy nature, to relax in nature, to, you know, uh, to recreate, if you will. Uh, and some of this goes back to like, 19th century traditions of. Um, you know, hiking and conservation and preservation movements um, in Germany. But I think there's also a recognition that, hey, you know, the East German government rebuilt pretty quickly after World War II. It pales, of course, in comparison to what was going on in West Germany and Western Europe, um, but they certainly recovered more um, quickly than perhaps a lot of people expected. They said, hey, okay, if we've done this material rebuilding you know, what's next? How else do we care for our citizens? It's their spiritual, emotional well-being, which they then tied to nature. Um, But there's also sort of an international aspect to this as well, which is that, you know, East Germany is in a constant battle with West Germany to be the legitimate Germany. Um, And so they want to be involved in these international conversations and uh, there's a rise of environmental concern in the post World War II period, especially heading into the 60s and 70s. And so they think this is something that they can really grasp onto and rhetorically sound really good about. And so the East German government develops all of this rhetoric around, uh, you know, unlike capitalism, we protect both nature and workers, which is sort of an interesting tie there. Um, of course, as we see then throughout the course of the book, um, it falls really flat. They don't invest in it. The pollution only gets worse and worse in most ways. Um, and then it becomes part of uh, the protest based in the churches in the 1980s.
2: Thank you. So um, sort of backing up perhaps a little bit, uh, maybe we could, maybe you could describe for listeners what some of the environmental challenges were in East Germany. What what sort of issues are, are, uh, are people concerned about and Yeah. What needs to be tackled here?
1: Oh, yeah. So East Germany has a myriad of environmental problems. Um, They are the most industrialized of the Soviet bloc states in Eastern Europe. Um, And they really follow a Stalinist model of rebuilding after World War II. So there's a lot of emphasis on coal and steel. And this makes sense, right? buildings, infrastructure destroyed, this needs to be rebuilt after the war. Um, But they don't invest in new technologies, by and large, they rebuild what's already there. Uh, So you have um, a lot of coal mining of a really low grade quality coal called lignite or brown coal, brown cola in German. Uh, And this is dug in big open pit mines that are, you know, Hundreds, thousands of acres. They're massive. They're bigger than towns and cities. They actually have to evacuate entire towns um, to expand mines along the coal seams and stuff like this. Um, One of the other big things for East Germany is their chemical industry. They, um, you know, as the Soviet bloc kind of develops different specializations, each country has its own sort of economic. Um, niche and chemical industry was one of East Germany's. So they do photochemicals, um, dyes, all sorts of things like that. Um, The region around Bitterfeld um, was known as the chemical triangle, sort of north of Halle. Um, And so, you know, that's one center of really bad um, pollution. Um, Yeah. So the chemical industry and the coal mining are perhaps two of the most famous and most notorious of the chemical problems. And that leads then to air pollution, water pollution, et cetera.
2: Right. So there's obviously inherent in the the industrialized core of this state, there's this problem of pollution. Uh, But in the second chapter, you talk about the ways in which the SED tries to institutionalize environmental protection and introduce this idea of socialist environmentalism. So can you tell us what was socialist environmentalism as, as you conceive of it and what were some of the ways that the party sought to address environmental concerns?
1: Yeah. Um, so socialist environmentalism or in German, the term is "sozialistischer Umweltschutz." so it could be translated as environmentalism or as environmental protection. It's sort of the same uh, word in German. They don't differentiate so much, but, um, yeah, they see this, it's it's right always this tension between um, prioritizing the economy, but also the ecology. So there's a conservation element to this. East Germany is a small country with not a whole lot of natural resources. So they need to use what they have very efficiently um, for industrial production and for the economy in various ways. So there's um, the one strain of it is to use what they have more efficiently. Um, and then the other is, as I alluded to earlier, this idea that workers deserve a clean environment. In fact, they, ins- they inscribed this right in the 1968 version of the constitution. There's a right and responsibility to a clean environment. Um, they then you know, legally carry this out through passing a, um, a law, the Landeskulturgesetze in 1970, um and then also they create the Ministry for Environmental Protection and Water Management. Um, and then through that, one of the things that happens quite quickly is people use their right to write petitions uh, to then apply to especially the environmental ministry, and be like, hey, we've got some pollution over here. Can you can you fix this for us? Um, and one of the most fascinating things to me in these petitions was early on there's a genuine interest on the part of the state to fix these problems for these people, um, you know, whether it's pollution from a local factory or, um, you know, something like that. But as, uh, time carries on, if you will, um, the state becomes more and more, um, reticent to actually address the problems or they realize they can't address them properly. And so, uh, the officials responding to these petitions end up, um, you know, finding more and more nitpicky reasons that there's something wrong with a petition that they shouldn't address it, like that multiple people, for example, had submitted or signed the same thing. Um, and so they just sort of shut down conversation about it um, later on and sort of move away from this genuine interest in trying to, to protect. Uh, or yeah, so uh,
2: there was this example that I just pulled that I just pulled out the book <laughs> yeah. to look at. Um on page 78, this, this village of Dorndorf, which is one of the places that, um, in which the state's receiving, uh, petitions from and, uh, a mother's criticizing the pollution for, from the local chemical plant, uh, that's affecting her family. So, um, like what are the sorts of problems that these people are describing that they want rectified?
1: Yeah. Um, one of the most common problems, um, I saw was um, just air quality dealing with like dust, coal dust, or uh, various other pollutants in the air. Um, And I think this is also one way in which I really saw gendered responses to uh, the pollution. It's often a mother or a wife um, writing this petition and saying, oh, I just want to be able to keep a clean household and I can't, you know, leave the windows open because you know, the window sills and the curtains get dusty, and then you know, or it smells so badly that I can't let my children play outside. Um, so, there's really sort of this uh, approach of you know, the motherhood using motherhood as a way of sort of pulling at the paternalistic heartstrings, if you will, of uh, state officials, uh, which I found really interesting. There's another example also where this teenage girl is just like, Oh. Us girls, just like our mothers, it's so hard to keep house and to keep things clean because (laughs) there's pollution from the coal mine right next door from the coal refining plant or whatever.
2: Yeah. So you have this whole infrastructure that's built up and you have a process that at least in theory allows folks to uh, voice concerns. But then you mentioned several times the importance of the year 1982 when the SED decides to classify pollution data. So why do you, why did they do this? And, and why for you is that decision so significant? Yeah,
1: 1982 really is a turning point in my book. Um, and maybe not one that I anticipated being a turning point when I first started writing the dissertation and then uh, revising for the book manuscript. Um, yeah, so in 1982, I. Uh, the SCD decides to restrict access or classify all environmental data. Um, Some of this had been done sort of piecemeal beforehand. It wasn't always easy to get um, damaging information from the state. But here there's this, I see it as a blanket recognition of we can't fix our environmental problems. And so we're going to pretend they don't exist by hiding them. Um, Basically, people can't know exactly how bad it is and they can't protest it if we don't let them see what the numbers are sort of one of the arguments I make there.
2: And another aspect to this, right, and you can't really have a discussion of East Germany without talking about them, but the the Stasi also plays a role in your story, right? So yeah. how is the Stasi involved in um, environmental protection?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, the Stasi become more involved over time, um, less so in the late 60s and early 70s, at least from the sources I was able to look at. Um, but by the late 1970s, the Stasi see uh, the environment as problematic or an important part of the economy. So one of the um, departments that the Stasi has under its purview is functioning or running of the economy. So if environmental pollution is getting in the way of running it, um, they can step in. Um, and this leads them you know, both for domestic concerns, but also for international concerns. I think one of my favorite stories in the book is that... Um, there's a chemical spill. It flows into a river that's then going to flow across the Iron Curtain into West Germany. The East Germans don't want to reveal to the West Germans just how bad this pollution is. So it and the the spill has killed a lot of the local fish and other uh, life in the in the river. So they send Stasi guys out with nets to catch the dead fish before they can flow across um, the river, so the West Germans won't be and they won't see the effects of the spill. Of course, the West Germans are monitoring, you know, uh, the acidity, let's say, of the river, and they see a spike, right, in these chemicals, so they know something has happened. Um, But it leads them to do these absurd things where they're just trying to hide, uh, the Stasis trying to hide uh, the reality or the degree of severity of the pollution. Um, And, of course, later on in the 1980s, as environmental groups... um, become a bigger thing within the Protestant church. Then they start, of course, infiltrating those groups as well and trying to sow discord that way.
2: That actually works as a good segue for my next question, which is uh, the other actors who are involved in environmental protection in East Germany. So how did they organize themselves and in which ways were they able to critique or influence government behavior?
1: Yeah, so um, right between chapters two and three in the book, I kind of make this shift from looking more at the party and state to looking um, at a different set of actors who are primarily housed in the Protestant church. Um, and in East Germany, everything, the, the party and state tried to control all aspects of uh, societal life. And of course, they didn't necessarily succeed in that but there weren't supposed to be independent institutions. Um, Everything was supposed to be organized through the party in that sense. So the Protestant church, and to a lesser extent the Catholic church, but it's much, much smaller in East Germany, um, the Protestant church becomes this institution that uh, kind of agrees, okay, SED, you're in power, but in doing so then gets a little bit of freedom to act in its own right. And the SED really can't, entirely clamped down on the church without like creating a huge international uproar. So there's kind of this detente between the two within the state. Um, in 1978, the Protestant church agrees to become the church in socialism, which actually means the, church, uh, the state backs off persecuting the church um, and gives it a little more space to breathe. Um, within the church then, the Protestant church there are a number of groups that emerge in the late 70s and early 80s, around a myriad of issues, but um, I look primarily, of course, at environmental groups. So they're often housed in a parish, they're all over East Germany, you know, from Berlin to Leipzig to Dresden to Schwerin, like, and in smaller towns too, especially later on. Um, yeah, and they start by really sort of trying to work with the party and state to improve local conditions, whether that's, you know, planting trees or, um, improving hiking trails or things like this. Um, but over the course of the 1980s, they become more antagonistic with the state, more oppositional and say, Hey, you know, we were critiquing your environmental policies. Those were bad. What if it's not your policies that's bad? What if it's the whole system? And so it transitions, um, I'd say, largely around uh, Chernobyl between um, from a, a policy critique to a system critique.
2: Yeah, I mean, that is one of the things that's so fascinating about environmentalism and and why it was perhaps such a powerful um, critique of, this, of the state socialist system, right? Because it is so encompassing in people's lives. Uh, but speaking of encompassing, I suppose, uh, I... One of the things that I really appreciated about your book was the close attention to geography and the efforts that you made to situate the GDR into this broader transnational context. Now, you suggested that in the beginning, um, but in the introduction, you say that pollution, policy and activism intimately tied the GDR to its neighbors and them to the GDR, transforming the small state into a crucial focal point in Central Europe. So can you tell us which of East Germany's neighbors you investigated and a little bit about the role they play in formulating environmental policy and or influencing environmental pol- protests?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, East Germany, I focus on, I think there's a tendency, and I alluded to this earlier also, um, to see East Germany in isolation from the countries around it. You know, it's got heavily militarized borders, it's Western border with West Germany is, of course, yeah, you know, the Iron Curtain very heavily militarized. They move people out of the border regions, right, because it's seen as a security threat. Stuff like this, um, but yeah, I mean, things flowed across the borders, right? I think this is a newer trend in Central European history, is to talk about how permeable borders actually were uh, during the Cold War, and that things really did. Um, people, policies, etc. did cross. So I particularly look at West Germany and Poland. Um, to a lesser extent, I talk about Czechoslovakia, which are sort of the three land borders that East Germany has. Um, West Germany makes a lot of sense, right? You know, divided German state, if you will, it's also the longest border, um, you know, what like roughly three quarters or so of East Germany's border. Uh, You have language ties, you have cultural ties, historical ties, um, and also very practically, you have things like radio and television uh, signals that go across the borders. Uh, So there's a lot of connection that way. Um, And of course, West Germany then has this rise of a Green Movement and then into Green Party in the 1980s, which is hugely influential. Uh, And this is one of the things I really wanted to tease out is how the Green Movement and Green Party in West Germany looked at East Germany and how East Germany looked at them and sort of as a two sided interaction. um, Because a lot of what I saw was in previous scholarship is that West German conversations about Green movements were fairly insular or perhaps looked west to France. Um, And so I wanted to see what's happening in this German-German conversation. And of course, you know, West German um, politicians at the local and state and federal level are trying to engage with East Germany to deal with border crossing pollution, um, both uh, somewhat air, but more water pollution like in the rivers, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, and there's a lot of conversation back and forth. By the 1980s, the Green Party is sending delegations to East Germany to look at stuff. Some of them actually get involved with these protest groups in the Protestant church. Um, and then that's really interesting because the Green Party is left leaning by and large. And so some are more sympathetic to the SED and then some are less sympathetic to the SED. So there are these interesting sort of like what type of left do we represent type questions there as well. Um, so I mean, the, the German-German side is I think a pretty obvious connection here so for me, I think one of the more interesting aspects of the work was then actually looking at Germany's um, longest border to the east, which is with Poland. Um, and you know, there, there's such a dividing line in European history and historiography at the uh, at the Oder River. But really, there is a lot of there are a lot of reasons to look eastward from East Germany. One. Um, Poland is also a Soviet-style communist state, uh, and so there are a lot of structural similarities in the um, economy and in society that were important for me to look at. Um, but Poland also has a much stronger tradition of protest and opposition, especially in the Catholic Church, and then with solidarity, and tends to have a more relaxed, more open um society, especially after the lifting of martial law in 1983, Uh, so Poland becomes a really important reference point, but also physically Poland, you know, large part of Poland had been German until 45, and so, uh, you know, many East Germans and West Germans are familiar with parts of Poland that had been German, you know, in in Silesia and Pomerania and um, Missouri, so those connections were really important too, and of course, then there's like the, the physical air and water pollution issues, especially air, that pollution from East Germany, given uh, prevailing winds and weather patterns, carried East German pollution eastward into Poland, um, which is actually the cover of my book, is a Silesian forester. So in Southwestern Poland, looking at um, acid rain pollution, or Waldstaben as the Germans call it, dying of the forest, um, that was primarily caused by East German um, industry.
2: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about Waldsterben and why it was such an important issue in Central Europe?
1: Yeah. So Waldsterben or uh, dying of the forest is this phenomenon that gained a ton of media attention in the 19, late 70s and into the 1980s. In West Germany, um, East Germany denies it exists, but they know what's happening. And then also um, in Northern Czechoslovakia and Northern Bohemia and in um, Southwestern Poland or Silesia, um, lower Silesia, this is a huge problem. So acid rain is um, caused by sulfur dioxide emissions. So a lot of the coal in East Germany was heavily laced with sulfur. Sulfur is burned, becomes sulfur dioxide in the air then, when it comes down as rain, is sulfuric acid and it kills the trees. And actually, if you go to many parts of Central Europe, especially um, in the former Soviet bloc, you can still see the effects of this. Um, Today the forests are still slowly regrowing along the the German-Czech border, for example. So it causes a whole number of ecological issues. The trees are dying. Um, The air quality is terrible. People who live in those regions tend to have um, more respiratory issues from the sulfur dioxide. Um, And so this becomes a huge issue. The West Germans talk a ton about it. Um, East Germans are denying it's happened. And then of course, so East Germany and, and Czechoslovakia actually come up with an agreement in the late 80s to try to, ad, or early 80s, excuse me, to try to address it. And then there's a trilateral agreement in the late 80s between Poland, Czechoslovakia and East Germany um, to deal with water and then air pollution issues um, and the air pollution then directly relating to acid rain. Um, and they don't come up with any answers, especially before it all falls apart. Um, but, yeah, this is a huge environmental issue that's still ongoing today.
2: So you've got the geopolitical angle, right? You, you can have the West German government or the Polish government complain about the cross-border pollutants. Um, but one of the interesting parts that you sort of hinted at, but maybe you could speak more to, was the issue of the East German government being suspicious of Poland because of its legacy of protest And the fact that they have somewhat of a more robust environmental protest group or more legacy of that. So can you talk about what the concerns are of the East German government vis-a-vis like other socialist states?
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. East Germany is typically more hardline than the Polish government, you know, sort of throughout the post-war period, but especially in the 1980s, um, the East German government is very wary of their neighbors to the East. Um, Obviously with solidarity in 80 and 81 um, East Germany, like basically closes the border and says, Oh, we're not going to let our people over there. They might get notions about protest and stuff. Um, And it does then open back up. The border opens back up later in the eighties. I would say especially, so yeah, where do I even start with this? This is so much fun. Um, Poland actually has the first independent environmental group that's not connected to a party or state that's founded in 1980 alongside Solidarity. And so they use the right that Solidarity wins to organize outside of party and state to form um, an independent environmental group, which is the Polish Ecological Club. Um, And it kind of gets quiet for a few years during martial law and then really re-emerges in 84-85. And Poland also really embraces uh, Gorbachev's Glasnost and Perestroika starting in 85-86. And so Poland becomes this place that's relatively open Uh, for Eastern Europeans broadly, but East Germans in particular, to meet and to gather and to talk about ideas, um, because it's within the Soviet bloc, so they can travel there more readily than getting permission to travel to the West. Um, But it's more open, and there's more freedom of discussion and organization. So Poland becomes this really fascinating... Place of interaction for, let's say, East and West Germans who have to go east to Poland to Krakow to talk to one another about environmental pollutions that affect the whole region, Um, and others from Eastern Europe, from Hungary and Lithuania and places like that can all in Czechoslovakia also are able to travel to Krakow for organizations. And there's um, this group called Greenway, which interestingly, is English speaking primarily, or they, they communicate in English, not Russian, um, is the, the common language between all of them in the 1980s. And they meet up there uh, to talk about environmental problems that affect all Eastern European states. Western Europeans are able to travel there, help support them, help them to organize and learn from uh, Western environmental movements as well. So yeah, Poland becomes this sort of fascinating site and then of course the, the stasi and the east german state are super nervous about all of this and they keep applying to the west german or sorry excuse me to the polish uh secret police be like hey can you tell us about who's over there and what's going on in the polish secrets or the secret police are kind of like yeah okay whatever like they don't really respond um, uh, as readily or as uh, thoroughly as the stasi would like them to
2: yeah. And I mean, I, you did mention before, but there's informants, right, active in some, at least, of the environmental protest movements in East Germany, too. So you've got that angle
1: as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, you have um, Yeah, the Stasi really, it's interesting, because the Stasi at first sees like human rights and peace movements and things like that as being more problematic. And the environment is like, oh, okay, they're just dealing with like local cleanup problems, no big deal. Um, but then they realize, as you know, the eighties go on, that the environment's going to be a really big problem. And so, yeah, they devote a lot of resources to having informants uh, in a lot of the the church based or an in independent environmental groups, um, trying to sow discord, you know, create tensions between individuals, or trying to get into the inner circle. Of some of these org- these groups, um, to you know, be able to break up meetings or events they have planned, things like that.
2: Yeah, so I think this is a good segue into this moment, right, where you do have environmentalism go from maybe more provincial and locally based to something that's a European wide phenomenon, uh, with the Ch- Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986 so you say that it reshaped environmental movements anti-communist rhetoric and connections in central europe so can you talk a little bit about the importance of chernobyl
1: yeah um in some ways chernobyl is really interesting because anti-nuclear movement was very strong in west germany and let's say in france as well it's not in eastern europe until chernobyl um nuclear power is seen as the alternative to coal, which is, you know, devastating the environment in different ways. Um, So it's not until there's this moment when Soviet-style nuclear reactor melts down, right, Um, and becomes this all-encompassing concern for everyone, regardless of political borders, everyone's like, oh no, what's going on? This could be disastrous for us in a lot of ways, that there's a reaction. Um, So Chernobyl is really important in the on the level of like there's a, a mutual environmental disaster that everyone's reacting to. But I also argue that uh, how the communist states, Soviet Union, East Germany, Poland, etc. respond to Chernobyl, that makes it an even bigger issue. Um, and I talk about it in terms of information politics, right, that they. Uh, don't immediately fess up to the um, to Chernobyl happening. They delay public statements about it until after May Day celebration. So, you know, Chernobyl happens on May, uh, April 26th, 1986. They don't make public statements about it until May 2nd. Meanwhile, anyone who has access to Western information has been hearing about it for virtually a week and is really concerned Um And so the delayed and then only partial response uh, creates, I argue, more problems for the state then. So it's both environmental and political then.
2: And then you've also got this really interesting convergence where there are nuclear power plants that are being built actively, like Stendhal, that are based on basically the same engineering model as Chernobyl. So um, that, of course... Brings about some protests. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the protests that follow on the heels of Chernobyl?
1: Yeah, so um, there are definitely protests. East Germany had, I want to say, three other operational um, nuclear power plants at the time. There's another one being built at Stendhal, which is outside of Magdeburg. And yeah, um, there are local doctors from, like, medical doctors from Magdeburg who talk about the problems the church gets involved. Everyone's writing petitions on every level. Uh, and the, you know, the East German state just doesn't really respond to it or it tries to sort of sidestep those major issues. Um, and it continues to be, you know, under construction. It's not finished, um, in 80, by eighty nine ninety, And then as soon as, um, you know, Unification starts happening. They shut down all East German power plants. Um, I think it's also really interesting, the response in Poland, where um, there hadn't been, as far as I can tell, hardly any environmental or um, anti-nuclear protest, specifically until Chernobyl. And they're in the process of building a nuclear power plant in the north near um, Gdansk, but also storing it in other places and Manziszcz. Um that create, um, really large protests relative a to how small it had been before. Um, and then b um, just in, in, general, right? Like that there's a lot of animus there where there hadn't been, um, prior to Chernobyl and they actually, Poland does stop their nuclear power, um, constructor construction of nuclear power plants and all of that sort of stuff. Um, until actually like, the 2000s, and, and now they're yeah, until still recently. Right. <laughs> but yeah. at the time, they're like, oh, maybe we don't want to be a part of this. Never mind. And yeah, now they're, now they're uh, looking to return to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know that you sort of vocalize it exactly in the book, but it is really fascinating how there is this through line about energy production and how problematic energy production is throughout the history of state socialism. Um, And, you know, if it's not lignite, then it's nuclear energy, but it's always sort of at the heart of of the issue.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of phrasing it. I hadn't thought about it exactly, but you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. I phrase it more in terms of like this tension between economy and ecology, but right at the heart of any economy is energy production, right? You need coal and oil, and we haven't talked about oil at all, but East Germany is trying to move more to oil. And then the oil crises of the 1970s hit and um, they get fewer oil deliveries from the Soviet Union. And so they actually have to double down on brown coal, even though they know it's horribly polluting and inefficient. Um, yeah, so it, like, there are no good solutions, right? And you know, there are a couple of sort of out there people I found in the um, church-based groups who are talking about like solar or more wind. But yeah, these, if anything, are really small scale type, like uh, in German, you might say Aussteiger, people who have sort of like opted out of society who are living in really rural areas and are like, I'm going to build a windmill in my yard. You know, like it, it's not at all seen as a widespread or like structural solution to their energy issues.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so moving forward to the collapse of the GDR, uh, so you've got situation in which you've had 40 years of trying to navigate these environmental catastrophes and uh, a pretty organic protest movement and organic ways of of, um, trying to solve these problems despite some serious um, impediments to doing so. And then you have the the collapse of the state and German unification. So what is the role of sort of the environmental knowledge of East Germans play at this time or not to play?
1: Yeah. Chapter six, the last chapter when I talk about this is probably the hardest one for me to write. Um, when I was looking back at other books on the topic that are primarily written in German and a lot of people just don't touch 89. (laughs) And I realized there's a reason why. Uh, There's an introduction of a lot of new actors. Um, And then the actors who I've really built up over the course of the first five chapters are almost rendered, they're sidelined, right? I guess that's maybe a better way of putting it. They're not rendered useless, which is too extreme. But they're kind of sidelined as this conversation about uh, unification really takes off and you have introduction in a lot of ways of West German um, environmental policies and principles that um, you know the protest within the SC, uh, like against the sed state once the sed is gone or no longer in sole power those networks have to figure out a whole new social political dynamic in which to function and one at which they're a real disadvantage because, They're being incorporated into a largely West German one that, um, you know, now has a couple of decades of experience under its belt and ways of operating. So um, yeah, this East German knowledge in a lot of ways kind of gets overlooked or uh, there's this Cold War triumphalism, the West one, uh, there's nothing to be learned from East Germans, even about their own local landscapes. And so, um, yeah, I think this is sort of uh, a, a letdown for readers in a way. It was for me that there there is no triumphal moment of transition for a lot of these uh, environmental policy and protest folks from East Germany across the 1989-90 divide. On the other hand, the environment is much, much cleaner thanks to West German standards and to, uh, you know, West German and EU money just being poured into developing new infrastructure for these. So it's they have the um, these beautiful green landscapes, but you know, in a lot of ways, the East German voices are left out of that transition. And many of uh, East Germans, at the same time in the 1990s, face a lot of new issues around uh, job security or unemployment um, and that sort of thing. So they're focused shifts away from environmental concerns and more to like, am I going to have a job here? Do I need to move to the West? You know, what are my, you know, what, what's my family's fortune going to be instead?
2: Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would assume that this brings about the kind of um, tension between industrial workers and environmentalists that you see in Western states as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was at a very small archive um, outside of Sittau. So like in a town of 200, village of 200 people called Kohlsenosdorf, which had an environmental library, which I stumbled on, which is why I ended up going there. Um, but yeah, uh, while I was there, and this was 2014, there was, you know, conversation about the continuing coal mining Um in that region, which is the major industry for the area, using much improved um, cleaning processes and refining processes for the coal, but then also, right, it's still coal and it's still bad. And so you had then this tension between this is our main industry, this is our form of employment. But also it's continuing to create environmental problems for us. And of course, you know, the more you dig coal, you, the harder it is to find it or, you know, run the steam runs actually under the town of Sitau and their plans in the 80s to um, raise the old town essentially to be able to get at it. Um, they don't do it. The town still exists. But, <laughs> um, you know, they right. This, this tension between employment and environmental issues or is an environmental concern, only a post-material concern, I'd argue it's not, but there is certainly um, multiple sides to those issues. Right.
2: Yeah. Well, we're almost nearing the end of our interview, but before we go, uh, I'd like to ask if you have any reading recommendations for our listeners that are interested in your topic.
1: Yeah. um, Off the top of my head, of course, uh, Tom Fleischman's Communist pigs, which is an animal history of um, the rise and fall of East Germany, is a great book. Uh, really looks at um, animal husbandry and pig production um, and meat consumption in East Germany. Super fascinating read. Um, also, Astrid Eckert's um, West Germany and the Iron Curtain is sort of a environmental history of the the German German border. Uh, of the Iron Curtain, which is a lot of fun to read as well. Um, gosh, those are the first two off the top of my head. Um,
2: I mean, that's yeah. great. Yeah, okay. I think um, that that uh, that at least one of those books has already been uh, the subject of of a new books network interview. Oh, so so uh, <clears throat> listeners can go find that one too. Um, but so last but not least, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your new project, Socialism and Socialist Riches.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um Solidarity and Socialist Riches. Oh, sorry. <laughs> solidarity
2: <laughs> and Socialist Riches.
1: Um, no worries. It's a lot of S's. Um, <laughs> so yeah, this actually, as with so many projects, I stumbled upon some documents while I was researching the first book. Um, and I was... the. There's a guy, Dr. Werner Tiedel, who's the first environmental minister of East Germany. He actually dies before he can officially assume the position. He's like in his 40, dies of a heart attack on uh, Christmas Day. It's very sketchy. Um, but he's going to Mongolia in the 1960s and then early 70s before he passes away. I'm like, what the heck is this guy doing in Mongolia? And this then led me down a rabbit hole of looking at... Um, or thinking about East German experts who are sent abroad. And there's already uh, an emerging literature on this. Um, But I want to look at this particularly from an environmental standpoint of how East Germans use um, German ideas and traditions of science and technology uh, dating back to the 19th century um, as a way of justifying their importance um, within the socialist world. And then how these experts, whether they're engineers, um, agricultural experts, um, things like this, mining experts, Germans very good at mining, um, and then they're sent to other places like Mongolia, for example, and end up affecting and changing landscapes that are very, very far away from East Germany. Um, So it's sort of history of science technology in terms of these traditioning ideas about engineering, mining, agriculture, uh, forestry, stuff like that, but then also environmental in terms of how do East Germans in the Cold War um, end up shaping and inadvertently creating new problems in these countries uh, and landscapes and environments that they don't understand. Um, so that's well, That sounds sort
2: of, really cool.
1: I think so. <laughs> really think cool it's,
2: global history. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, there's a lot of... Um, interested in my university to do more global type history. And this is a project that sort of lent itself to that. But it's also really fun in terms of uh, Soviet and Eastern European history that it gets at how East Germany and other uh, Soviet bloc states are interacting with other socialist or non-aligned countries uh, and sort of breaks down this myth that the Soviet bloc is really monolithic, right? That they're all right, jockeying for position within this Cold War context, right.
2: Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for speaking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: The book is Saving Nature Under Socialism, Transnational Environmentalism in East Germany, 1968 to 1990, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. This has been New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm Leslie Waters. Until next time.